welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature Steve Cardenas. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the High Action Podcast. This is a special episode because we have reached episode number 10. How about it, guys? Yeah, all right. Episode 10. We're very excited. We have a wonderful guest for the podcast today, the great Steve Cardenas. And as I was thinking about this episode, something really struck me. And this is the idea that, you know, you can really understand a player's personality sometimes when you hear them play. It's not always the case, but if you've heard somebody play and they have kind of a relaxed, sophisticated, you know, very thoughtful way of playing, oftentimes their personality matches up. It's not always the case. But when you listen to Steve Cardenas, you sort of hear that very relaxed, thoughtful, intelligent type of playing. And I think that's kind of how he comes off. What do you say, Will? How did that come off to you? Yeah, I think when he plays, you can follow his lines. You can hear him play something and you can you can follow along and you hear how it makes sense musically, how it makes sense rhythmically, yeah. how it makes, makes sense um, lyrically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. it kind of fits with his personality because then when we were speaking to him, he has that same rhythm with the way he speaks. You know, it's a little slower. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, again, he's very thoughtful and intelligent. And yeah, I thought that really came through. John, what did you think? Yeah. And, you know, he is of that generation that is so loose and laid back, man. It's like, and I love that, you know, that his delivery, the way he talks about his travels and how he ended up in LA and in New York. Yeah. And that comes through in his playing too, this kind of full sustained you know, embodiment of kind of this jazz musician that grew up in in that generation. And it's fun to get to talk to people like that for sure, man. Yeah. And I've always been kind of fascinated by cats that have had a significant amount of experience on both coasts. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. maybe that's just me personally, because I'm from California and then now in New York for 10 years. But I like musicians that have sort of felt each of those sides of the country for music or really any different kinds of scenes, uh, whether it's in the middle of the country or on the coast, wherever, because it kind of broadens you as a musician. You know what I mean? Right. right. Certainly, certainly does. And um, yeah, and and also when he was on the West Coast, too, it was a real different time, you know, yeah. with working with, you know, Charlie, when he was working with Charlie Hayden and what that where that led to him and stuff, too, it's it cool to get to hear that and to hear him to talk about it. It's a it's a fun, fun interview today. I won't give too much away for the listener, but we definitely, there's one cool story where he talks about getting recommended for a gig and getting hired for a gig before the guy had even heard him play. And I thought that was so cool and old school. It's like nowadays it's totally different because if somebody wants you for a gig, they're going to check out your Instagram, they're going to mm-hmm. check out your YouTube, they're going to check out all this stuff, your website. Yep. But back in the day, it was just like, okay, you say this guy's killing? Cool, let's get him on the tour, you know? And that's that was a pretty neat story. What do you think of that, Will? I thought that was cool, and that is interesting how you bring that up. That now it's like there's no there's no such thing as a blind date. Whereas <laughs> in those days, you're going off the word of your friend. Like maybe maybe the bandmate recommended Steve, and and that's all the cat needed to hear who was hiring him. 
and uh, that's special. It's kind of a special thing that that definitely is not as common these days because you want to know who you're getting, right? And if you have the ability, you're going to go on YouTube and look them up and at least check something out. Yeah. It's kind of like how Wes got signed to Riverside Records. You know, Cannonball Adderley told the guy who was president of the record label, said, man, there's this guitar player that played with me in Indianapolis. You've got to hear him. And he came out to the Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, you know, Wes, and played for him. And it was like Cannonball Adderley recommending Wes Montgomery. It was like before yeah. he was recorded as Wes Montgomery. You know, it's yeah. It's the same right. thing. It's just so crazy. That's, that's, how we, that's how these legends that we that we've grown up with got to um, got their start. And like you said, today there's, there's no mystery, you know, musicians mm -hmm. don't carry as much mystery with them anymore. They put everything out there that they're working on and it's the total pro artistic process mm -hmm. that we put out there for everybody. Yeah. It, and as we've talked about many times, that's a double edged sword because there's a lot of resources for us to grow from as a result of all that. Uh, we have a lot of tools at our disposal, but yeah, that mystery is not quite as present there. Um, but that's what's sort of so interesting about uh, some of these interviewees that we've been getting on here is because they can kind of give us a window into what the scene used to be like if they were coming up in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s, you know. And yep. uh, that's really important for us to understand in these different times. So I think without further ado, let's just jump right into this episode. Uh, I really hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening and for subscribing to our podcast. We've reached episode 10. It's a little mini milestone for us, and we've got a lot more to come. So stay tuned for lots of great episodes. Also, just a quick shout out to our Patreon members. Man, these people are so wonderful. Thank you so much for subscribing and making this podcast a little bit more possible for us. For those of you that are interested, check out New West Guitar Group on Patreon. We got lots of cool exclusive stuff on there. We talk about our own practicing routines, kind of a window into our world on the guitar. So thanks so much for people who are uh, supporting us that way as well. And without further ado, please enjoy Steve Cardenas. Here on the High Action Podcast, we are thrilled to welcome the incredible Steve Cardenas as our guest today. Steve, I'm a big fan of your playing. I've seen you play various settings uh, throughout New York. Um, in the 10 years that I've been here, it's been remarkable to get a chance to hear you in smaller venues with trios and things, and then also hear you at, at larger venues. And when I was thinking about this, this interview today, and the title of your new record, Blue Has a Range, I thought it was very uh, apropos, as you might say, because you know, I consider you to have quite a bit of range as a guitar player. Uh, it seems like you're very comfortable with whatever setting you're in. I wanted to just share uh, a story about seeing you play at the Charlie Hayden Memorial Concert at the Town Hall. Do you remember that night? I'm sure you do. Yeah, I do very well. <laughs> It was an incredible uh, evening, and John Story was visiting from L.A. He was out there as well. I was blown away by what you did at the end. I mean, to give the listeners some context, it was an incredible concert uh, memorializing the wonderful Charlie Hayden, who, Steve, you had, you had worked with quite a bit. And there was a, just a, a host of musicians on the stage and people in the audience. It was an incredible scene. 
and you played at the very end with the Charlie Hayden Liberation Orchestra, and you just ripped into this solo and threw down so hard. And it was, it was really wonderful to hear you in that setting, because prior to that, I had heard you at, in smaller venues uh, around New York. So it was really incredible. Could you just start out talking about that night? It was such a special night. I think it will go down in jazz history as a pretty incredible night. Oh, man. Night. Oh, sheesh. Well, that was, that was a special night. And as you said, there was, there was just legendary and amazing musicians there. I mean, everybody that's not just significant and relevant for playing with Charlie, or, but uh, just musicians that I think that had, maybe hadn't played with him, some that just had something to say, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, yeah, because Pat Metheny was there and Frizzell and... and uh, Brad Meldow and Lee played. That was so cool. Lee yeah. was sang, like was playing and then he sang. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that was to me. It was like just that would have been enough for me that night. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> it was amazing. But um, I was in the the last version of you know of Liberation Music Orchestra, which reformed in two thousand four, and Charlie got it together. Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Cat sleeping in funny position. <laughs> Monica had to call my... Oh, my gosh. You should take a picture. Anyway, okay. So, <laughs> sorry. No, it's I promise okay. That won't happen. Yeah, I have two cats yeah. myself, so I understand. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> where, was, where was I? <laughs> Charlie Hayden and that... Oh, yeah, the, yeah. That p- so... Char, you know, Charlie had asked every any everyone that was still around, if you know, that had previously been in the band, if they wanted to get back together. And several, like Motion and Mick Goodrick, had declined. Actually, they were just kind of done with traveling and not wanting to do it anymore. And then there were uh, others, same thing. And then there were some that had passed away. And and so it really kind of ended up being a new, a whole new band with the kind of just a few holdovers, mm-hmm. Curtis Folks and Joe Daly. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, Carla was there who's, you know, right. it's not the, even though it's Charlie's, it was Charlie's group. I mean, she was, you know, everything to him. In that group. I mean, she was the music director and pianist and, you know, without her, it wouldn't, wouldn't be the same, even if Charlie was there. Right, you know? right. But but we did do some gigs where Carla couldn't make it, and Alan Broadbent did an amazing, you know. So, but however, I I digress. But <laughs> it was so anyway. So that group, you know, we, we did a couple tours. We did a record. We played till the end of Charlie's life as much as he could play the last year of his life. But um, um, I just wanted to give you a little backstory, please. On yeah. the, that last version of the band. That was, well, it was a legendary night. Um, I can still hear and remember the sound of your guitar just like wailing through at the town hall on that last tune. You must have been thinking of Charlie during that moment, whatever was well, coming out. It must have been emotional for you in, in a sense. It, I mean, it, it was, and, and I think I remember what tunes we played. I know that was Amazing Grace, which featured me and Curtis 
and Malaby. Mm -hmm. And then Charlie would normally play the solo right before me. So that was always kind of daunting for me sometimes because, you know, he's just such like the consummate improviser, you know? Yeah. And, and, and then all, and it's all, and it's like everything kind of comes down and the focus is so amazing for his ideas. And then I would have to come kind of, stumbling in you know (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh let me just quickly uh rewind the clock here a little bit um i i know you are from kansas city but i don't know a whole lot about how you got into music and how you eventually ended up in new york can you maybe just share with our listeners just a little bit of a brief synopsis of what brought you to the guitar and ultimately in new york Okay, it's a little bit of a circuitous route, but I'll try to abbreviate as much as possible without sure. leaving out relevant information. Sure, please. We, <laughs> so we got three hours? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, um, born and grew up in Kansas City and, and actually um, took up the guitar at age 14, played in, little, in rock bands with, with some friends. And, but the high school I went to, and you know this is late '70s, so mm-hmm. that's a long time ago. Um, that they had um, big band as a class, which at that time most of the high schools had stage band <laughs> as a an after school thing. You right, know, right, right. But this was a credited class. It was so this high school was a little bit ahead of things. Me and my friends went through these different kind of evolutions of kind of moving from say top forty rock to some to prog rock, to fusion, and then, you know, getting into bebop. And it was really kind of a nice musical progression because it didn't, it wasn't like somebody was pushing me to like play straight ahead. It was, it was more like I was acquiring a taste through the process, which, which meant a lot because I was really ready each time, you know, to, and, and, and then my hunger for whatever it was in front of me was strong, you know? Right, right. So um, after high school, I was really uh, getting involved, you know, learning Charlie Parker tunes. And, and I also loved ECM music. I, this kind of goes to what you said earlier. I just had, I like a, a lot of different kinds of music. So um, then my one friend of mine in high school, we started going around to, to jam sessions around Kansas City. We weren't, we weren't old enough to really stay in the club, but if we had our instruments and they were off nights, they were okay with it. it. They they weren't going to get in trouble necessarily, um, the clubs. So we would sit in and in the host of those sessions, older guys were very gracious <laughs> to that's, let us sit in. That's cool. And that's really, I mean, a lot of how I learned. I, I considered going to music school, but, you know, when I got out of high school and I was just going to junior college and then the local university, I just, I was playing so much, uh, you know, some, there was even a point like around 1981 where I was playing six nights a week and five afternoons a week. Wow. Like a, a, yeah. And every group, like one group was all originals. One group was kind of more bebop and standards. One group was a bigger group that played a mixture of different jazz type tunes um, than that happy hour group was a trio with two guitars and bass and that's where i learned a lot of standards actually with that group john lomas okay great guitar player in in lawrence kansas so that's why 
even though if had I gone music school, it probably would have been good for my reading and all of those kind of rudimentary things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, I was studying with a, a local teacher who wasn't a guitar player, John Elliott, who was sort of like the town guru. And uh, he taught all the guitar players. He didn't teach scales and modes at all. He, he taught just kind of vertically, like uh, common tone, voice leading type things. Mm. Me- meanwhile, I'm, I'm also teaching myself how modes and scales sure. work and all that sure. stuff. Having this vibrant local scene, it just, I stayed in, in Kansas City into well, my mid-20s, maybe a little beyond before I moved. So then I actually moved to California first. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, because yeah. I was visiting these friends in the Bay Area. That's where and, I'm from, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was so beautiful. And, and I realized that there was a, a much, there was a scene that, that was bigger than the scene I, I had come from and what it really challenged me. And I just kind of on a, I wouldn't say a whim, but just thought, you know, I, I, could, I could spend some time here and I'm sure learn a lot and get my butt kicked and everything. And, it, and it's an incredible place. So I moved there and I lived there for four years. And then by default, I moved to L.A. for two years because of a trumpet player, Jeff Beal, whose yeah. band I was playing in. Okay. And he, he was hiring me to come down and play some gigs. And then I was just kind of getting to know musicians in the scene there to the point that I thought, gee, I could, I never thought of moving to L.A., but maybe I should just try it. And yeah. So I did it for two years. Next thing you know, this drummer friend of mine, Mike Hyman, good buddy, used to play with Joe Henderson and Gary Burton. And okay. He, uh, he needed a roommate. He was going to move back to New York, and he needed a roommate. This is 1995. So I thought, I could do this, and if it didn't work out in six months or whatever, I felt like I could go back to L.A. and not have burned right. bridges or anything. But here now it's 25 years later, and here we are. That's fascinating. Um, it's fascinating to uh, hear you've had these experiences in these different cities. I, I think that probably helped you throughout your career because you met different cats in these different places. And did that kind of help foster said, opportunities uh, later on yeah, for you? I think it did. I mean, I've had different thoughts about it over the years. And part mm-hmm. of me thought, I should have just been more ambitious and just moved to New York. But when I think about it, it's like, well, is ambition really just like the whole thing? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I no, know. it's, yeah. it's, I mean, music is also, is learning, is also learning about life. And, and I'm so glad in retrospect that I actually went to California first because I know that had I moved to New York first, I probably never would have made those moves. Right. You know, and, and I got to know musicians play with musicians and, uh, that are ama- that are as world you know world class in, you know anywhere you made quite yeah. the impact uh, on the New York scene uh, so you were here in 95 and did you feel like when you arrived on the scene that here in New York did you feel like there were ample opportunities for you to get heard I mean you weren't connected with a university or a school or anything but in terms of yeah. how the scene was set up did you feel like okay I can I have chances to kind of get out there and play with cats and kind of get something started? Well, you know, I moved to New York. I was already in my 30s. 
And, and a lot of musicians that move to New York usually are in their 20s and sometimes in their early 20s coming right out of music school like right. Berkeley or that happens a lot. Um, so first of all, I was part of me was kind of scared. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what am I doing? Yeah. Is yeah. this like just dumb? <laughs> but I, I, I said no to myself. And <laughs> um, the upside to that was that I already had established relationships with the musicians in Kansas City and California. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of those musicians had or some, you know, a good number had moved to New York. So I was, in a way, I wasn't starting from square one. Right. I was, you know, so, and, and one musician that was really key in that was Kenny Wallison. Mm, yeah, the great drummer. You know, Kenny, Kenny, yeah. he, was, he was a really good friend, and I used to have a trio with him in San Francisco. Okay. And he and Peck Almond had moved to New York a couple years before I did. So Kenny lived in Brooklyn at the time, and he and Peck had this, kind of just two apartment building and Kenny had all like it was big enough for him to have all of his percussion stuff and all of his so he would host jam sessions I was meeting musicians right and left at Kenny's jam sessions wow that's where I met Cheek wow and I mean I could Ben Street met there uh a lot of a lot just like tons of musicians and so that I I got I was lucky that you know, that I I didn't have to start from scratch. Right. I mean, and I kind of knew that going into it, and and I don't know if I would have made a move quite that heavy at that time in my mm-hmm. life had I, if I didn't have at least people that I knew already there. Right. That's yeah. yeah it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because I felt the same way being originally from mm-hmm. California, growing up in the Bay Area, and then ending up in Los An- down in Los Angeles where I was studying at USC with the great Joe DiOrio. That's also where I met John. Four years after finishing with that school and working in LA, I was trying to kind of build a bit of a bridge, so to speak, to get to New York. And I found it really helpful that I arrived in New York a little with a little bit more experience than some of the cats that had just came right out of school that were coming from Berkeley or from another school. So I definitely feel you on that. Uh, Speaking about some of the people that you've gotten a chance to work with, uh, I really wanted to ask you about some of them. We talked a little bit about Charlie, Charlie Hayden, but you've worked closely with people that really connect the tradition of the music, people that have been on really important recordings throughout jazz history. Um, Speaking particularly about Charlie Hayden and also um, the great Paul Motion. You were in his electric bebop band for quite some time, and... And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the experiences that you gained from specifically working with Paul Motion and how that maybe has influenced you going forward. Well, you know, I should start out by saying that both both Charlie and Paul, I mean, you know, they were kind of musical heroes long yeah. before I ever met them. Yeah. Since since my uh, teen, like late teen years, really, mm-hmm. on the uh, I kind of got. I know. I got to know they were playing first on those Keith Jarrett uh, quartet records. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know. Yeah. And um, so then, then from there, you know, you start to explore. And then I start. I checked out Charlie on the Ornette stuff and yeah. Paul on Bill Evans, yeah. early Bill Evans, and so they had their. I had their 
they were like uncles I never met or something. You know? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> I started playing in Paul's band in 1997. And uh, first tour was later that year. And I remember the first sound check, actually, because Swallow was in the band, which is when I first wow. met Swallow, too. Killing. And, and, that guitar, and that band always had two guitars and two tenors for a long time. And Rosenwinkel was the other guitar at the time, and Chris Potter and Chris Cheek were the, the tenors. And so when I first talked, you know, Paul just kind of cold called me and asked me if I wanted to do the tour, which I thought, wow never heard me play but you know that's so old school in a way like if so-and-so right. gets a recommendation they'll just call and they trust the source you know and so yeah and back then it's not like he could just pull up your youtube clip or you know yeah. like yeah it was different right. back then and i remember you know i said well yeah i would love to do it of course and then i the tour and then and i asked him will we rehearse and he you know Paul has a reputation for, at least at that point in his life, not really rehearsed. He said, oh, no, we'll just run some tunes at the first sound check, and I'll send you some music. Okay. And then and the, the music was like that thick, and I thought, oh, man, I wonder if they play certain tunes. You know, I'm just going to learn the whole book, because <laughs> it'll just be my... It'd just be like the thing for me to find out. They've been playing certain tunes, and then they get on the gig, and he's like calling something that I didn't really go over. Right, know? right, right. So, but, you know, a lot, I mean, half of it were, were tunes I knew anyway because of the be some of the bebop repertoire and Monk. But then the other tunes were, it was great because it was like, oh, I've always needed to learn this tune. Now I, I have to learn this tune, <laughs> you know. So the first sound check, I remember having this kind of moment of, like, I couldn't believe my ears because we weren't even playing it. Everybody was just checking out, you know, because Paul, you know, they bring drums. So he's just setting up his stuff swallows plugging in his amp we're all doing stuff and i hear paul just kind of hit his symbol without me looking at it and i just was like i know who that is yeah <laughs> you know i could just like i know and then same with swallow just hearing a couple notes like i know who that is that's so cool <laughs> you know it was really kind of jarring it didn't frighten me it was more like it made me actually feel really happy and comfortable in a way <laughs> yeah yeah that must have been amazing to connect with heroes of yours you know and that was 97 so that was just a couple of years after you'd been on the scene that must have been pretty wild yeah i i was doing some touring with madeline peru during mm -hmm. like around that previous the year previous and and around the time that paul called me so I was. I think that this was all because of Kenny, really, because mm. uh, he had played on Maddie's first record, and when they were getting the record company was getting ready to do some, you know, put it out and promote it, they needed a road band, and Kenny recommended. You know, it's like that's the thing. Friends. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Can't beat them. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, speaking of uh, friends, uh, your your new album has. Uh, host of your friends on there as well. Uh, Blue has a range. Really, a beautiful album. I've been checking it out. Um, you know, you have one of my favorite tones on the 335, and that's beautifully displayed on this album. You also did some really nice acoustic guitar stuff that I want to ask you about. Uh, would you mind if we played uh, a track? Um, this sure. is a clip from Please. Reflector. 
which is the, oh, yeah. the sixth track on the album. I think this is just a great example of your approach to soloing and how you play with a band. So I'm going to cue this on up here. This is uh, just a little snippet from, from the song here. Steve killing man <laughs> thanks I don't know if that solo would have worked if it wasn't for those other three guys <laughs> uh, yeah right yeah those those but, guys are okay I mean, you know when I listen to it they're such great listeners like everything I do it's not like they're trying to imitate or even they just respond in a way that's so complimentary and they to me extend the idea to another place you know it's really Absolutely. I mean, that group, uh, I believe it's John Coward, who I know a little bit, Ben Allison, and uh, the great Brian Blade. You guys have a wonderful synergy together. And it, it's kind of uh, segues into this question I've always wanted to ask you. And you know, one of the things that I really admire about your, your approach and your playing is you have such patience in the way you play and sort of a sense of uh, like a calm sense and like a sense of being in control or just... Um, comfortable uh, up on the stage and when you're improvising. I'm sure you've seen different musicians, whether it's guitar players or horn players, that get a little frantic when they're playing or they, get, they can get a little overwhelmed by everything that's going on with the band. You know, where do you kind of attribute that sense of calmness and patience in your playing? Is that something that you developed or is it something that you feel like kind of came naturally to you? Well, it's hard when you're the person because you know how it is. Like in my own mind, I'm like hanging on for dear life. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? So perspective is everything. I guess but, so. Um, well, you, you know, I, I, I could say one element of it would be Jim Hall, <laughs> you know, because he like epitomizes that. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like I consciously you know necessarily because I've listened to tons of different guitar players and gone through different phases and and tried to absorb all good things you know from everyone yeah but Jim Hall you know 
you know, if I had to name a select few that had a particular and like an extra impact, he mm-hmm. would definitely be like probably top of the list, <laughs> right? In a way, you know, yeah. Just because he's like the he's the consummate improviser. I was lucky to to hear him and see him play many times, and the thing that is amazing, like when you listen to Jim play on a record, you think, wow, what focus, what, um, what compositional uh, sensibility, the way he shapes, dynamic, the whole thing. When you're actually watching him live, he looks like he doesn't know where he wants to go next until the last millisecond. Right. It's like, it, it's like he literally is just listening his way into the next idea, you know. And you're seeing it and hearing it, all, you know. And that really always kind of blew me away because it's like, you know, it's, he sounds so relaxed, but he's still being spontaneous and improvising. So there, there is a way to do this and not feel like you're on the spot. You just, you just have to get to this place where you're working with ideas and learning to hear the possibilities in a way that you don't feel like you're guessing. And on the other hand, you don't feel like you're playing memorized vocabulary. But it's just kind of big picture sort of stuff. I imagine, though, that this also helps when you're playing with people that you have a lot of trust in. But, you know, I think you and John, you and John Coward have a great connection together and obviously Ben Allison and Blade. So it seems like that can happen a little easier when you're comfortable in the setting that you're in uh, with the people that are around you and you have that sense of trust with them. I've always related to rhythm section players just as a guitar player a lot. I played in a lot of drummer and bass players bands. Yeah. And um and really good man, I've been really lucky, really great ones. I was in Joey Barron had a band called Killer Joey for two yeah. ten years. It was me and Brad Shepick and Tony Shear. And wow. I learned a lot in that band about that because Joey has this sense of time and patience and unbelievable facility, mm. but musicality takes like is the pr- prime mover for him mm. you know so when so if he uses all you know, like a lot of technique it's because that's what the music needs right then mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. because he's trying to show anybody anything you know and i think that's true that was also true of motion and charlie even though they're known for being more impressionistic or they they both had this rock solid time that was just like the center of their time was so strong and Paul's beat, you know, so wide, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like he could hit one and you felt, and you felt like, wow, that was one, that was undeniably one. And yet one was that big, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just, so cool. it, it was, it was, uh, I learned a, a lot from, playing with them as well as musicians I grew up with that aren't well known. Right. 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 So that's, that's the thing. It's, I I don't know how much more to expand on that other than I, I just try to keep my awareness up and uh, try to play guitar players can, can, as you all know, can focus on, on theory, you know, technique and all this stuff. And then it's like, Hey, what about time and rhythm? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and 
and and that really gets kind of like oh you know pushed aside in favor of like this mode or you know whatever and it's like well no because you gotta your ideas have to be clear none of that means anything unless you have clarity Today's podcast is brought to you by Marchione Guitars, handcrafted instruments made by luthier extraordinaire Stephen Marchione. I have two of his guitars. I have the 59 Semi Hollow, and I have the OM Acoustic. They play amazing. They sound like nothing else. Completely resonant across the whole body. Uh, Wide frets, just so many overtones, so much beautiful sound coming out of these instruments. All made personally by Stephen by hand. Check them out at marchioneguitars.com. Pass it off to John to ask you a few questions. I wanted just to highlight another track from your album, kind of based on what you're talking about, about clarity. And this is um, a clip from you playing over, uh, I think it's called Blue Blue Language. This is the second track on the album. I'd love to feature this. This has kind of like a like a NOLA vibe or something. Um, yeah. And it's, it's really happy. I'll talk about that. Okay. After. Let's, <laughs> let's hear this. This is from uh, Blue Has Arranged, the, the track Blue Language. John, John Coward it's sounds crazy. so great with you, man. I know. His comping behind me, that's another It's another one of those, like, I don't know if the solo would have come off without the question and answer exactly. aspect to it, you know? Because he would, 
in whenever I left the space, he would just play the perfect thing to set me up. You know, just this nice it little, was amazing. nice little bluesy lick that's just perfectly placed. And anyway, it's a really great so, album. We I, we do have one more track, uh, some acoustic thing I wanted to play later, but. Let me just quickly pass off to John's story here. Uh, yeah, certainly. Thanks. And Steve, again, thanks for being us here on the High Action Podcast. It's, um, man, it's just it's just delightful uh, hearing you play. There's, like Perry said, there's such a fluidity, a calmness, a, a uniqueness, uh, modern. Your sound is so modern, but um, I hear Grant. I hear a lot of the kind of traditional guys. It's it's so lovely, your tone on your acts that you get on your 335 Oh man! So I just wanted to say that I'm, I'm a big fan. I got to kind of check out you a little bit deeper when um, Anthony Wilson called me to do the Seasons Quartet gigs on the West Coast. I played a lot of your parts, and that stuff is uh, definitely woodshed sight reading level material. <laughs> so I just want to say, you totally, <laughs> at the live at the Met recording, you totally killed it on those beautiful Monoleone guitars. Um, oh man. Yeah, and that, I know that must have been an interesting project for you with Julian and Chico and Anthony. Had you worked a lot with Anthony prior to that point? Not really. I mean, we knew each other, but um, he just, you know, he had it in mind who he he had this combination of players that I got to hand it to him. He he picked four, you know, including himself, four really different players. And yet there, there was a kind of an instant chemistry. It was really cool. Although I felt like I was in over my head with all of them, and I was the oldest guy, you know. That's why I got the winter part. You know? Yeah, I played winter too. Yep, that was that was me playing winter. But uh, man, but yeah, but also just talking more about West Coast stuff. I also know that you did a residence out here at Cal Arts, which I'm an alum. Uh, I was at Cal Arts 2010 to 2012, and I was fortunate to get to study with Charlie just before he stopped teaching when he went to Arizona to get better. And then, of course, um, sadly, he passed in 2014, as we know. When you came out to CalArts, I know you and Larry kind of have a good friendship and go probably way back. And just the connection you guys have with with Charlie. I'm curious for you, how was that coming back to CalArts, doing some teaching for the for a whole semester? Um, and does being around Charlie, as we both know, like guy was such a... Um, such a spirit uh, and such a teacher. People don't really talk about what a great mentor, what a great teacher he really was uh, unless you were studying with him. But I'm curious to Charlie inform and Paul motion for that matter. Some of those guys inform how you teach younger guitar players in particular, because it's so rare as we know for there to be guitarists that get to interact with a lot of these guys on such a deep level. Yeah. You know, honestly, um, so I actually did two Cal arts residencies, the first one was in 2003, which Larry, you know, asked me to do then. And that's when I met Charlie. Um, and, and I met him kind of by, I, I never asked him how that, how it was. He just got my phone number and called because he had a concert, a solo concert just to do for administrators and trustees where he's just supposed to play like a half hour. And and he called me, left a message on my voicemail, just saying, "Hi, Steve. This is Charlie Hayden. I wondered if you could <laughs> come to Cal Arts and play like five tunes with me. Um, I, I'm supposed to do it solo, but I'd I'd rather do it with you." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> 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 you know, so wow. 
So, I mean, it's a good thing he didn't get a hold of me because I'd be like, okay, who is this? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like the classic Miles Davis. It's always like when people talking about, about Miles calling them, they're like, they're always like, they hang up on their friend. It's like, why'd you hang up on me? You know, but um, <laughs> so that's how I met him. And that, and it was just, you know, we played five tunes and it was incredible. Mm-hmm. Just the feeling of it. And I have a feeling that Motion, that he and Motion probably spoke, and Paul probably said something like, hey, one of my guys is out there, man, teaching right. at your school. You know, so Charlie has this kind of like, oh, really? You know, he probably immediately thought, oh, I can get, I can get that guy to play with me. Then I don't have to do a solo concert. <laughs> yeah, those, those gigs at CalArts are legendary. But my favorite one is Matheny in the 80s playing up there nice. in the gallery. And somebody, some student had a Fender P-Bass, and Pat said, hey, Charlie, come up and play a tune. And the main gallery was packed at CalArts. And Charlie put the Fender bass upright, like this way, and played it like this with Pat. And they played All the Things You Are for like an hour with Charlie playing the P bass <laughs> vertically. And there's oh, some bad. Yeah, and Kuhn said that that was one of the biggest moments ever in CalArts history. Everybody oh. wild, of course. But yeah. <laughs> that's cool. So it does. It sounds like that Charlie, I mean, that's really cool. He gave you that opportunity to work with those students and stuff. Are you doing a, um, a little bit of teaching right now too, or you mainly just been up until these recent times been working a lot on your, on your new project and on, on some of the gigs that you've been doing? Well, no, I teach at the new school and, and I've been there. I mean, I, I was on, I got on adjunct in 2000 and then got on faculty in 2007 when I, uh, John Hicks used to teach the monk ensemble and he passed away in 2006 so I applied to, you know, teach and got the gig, probably because of the book. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah, totally. And and um, but that's okay because you know I I I uh, I wasn't going in blind, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, totally. Well, and that's but, that's yeah, that's that's also so that's cool. You've been at the new school. Been at the new and, school, and I teach a guitar class called Guitar Duos. That's more comping focused, as well as an improv ensemble. So and then private lessons there. Very and, cool. and, and then I started some online teaching with Guitar Mastery Intensive recently. So I got a lot of, I'd like to teach. I've got a bit going on, thankfully. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Again, and for the High Action Podcast listeners, many of us are curious about our guests and who's teaching right now and doing that. So for mm-hmm. sure, those who are checking out the podcast should reach out and, and check out your teaching stuff. That's a great segue to Will's question, too. I know Will has some question about the monk stuff, too. And again, Steve, we just appreciate you taking the time. And uh, it's fun to connect like this. I feel like I'm at jazz camp, kind of like I'm getting to learn from all my favorite oh, guitar players. So thanks. Me, again. too. Yeah. <laughs> I just wish we were actually at a jazz camp in I Italy know. where we had some we could go to lunch and have amazing food and wine. No, yeah. No, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I know. We just have to do that in the comfort of our own home individually. <laughs> right. <laughs> Steve, it's great to uh, virtually meet you. Um, I haven't gotten to ever meet you or unfortunately see you play in person, uh, but it, it's great to meet you on here. Likewise. Thanks for being here. Um, yeah, as John hinted, I'd love to ask about your connection to Monk's music, which I'm sure we all have a, a huge affinity for and uh and working on the monk fake book which is which is you know awesome <laughs> we need it <laughs> well um i'll try to abbreviate this too because it it starts in kansas city with some friends um steve million great piano player and gerald space bass player 
that were very into Monk, into his more obscure tunes, and they, you know, we'd listen to records. They would play a lot of that music for me. And, you know, even though I was familiar with the more well-known Monk tunes, I was completely intrigued with all these different wild tunes I was hearing, you know. So then fast forward to moving out to the Bay Area and, you know, Randy Vincent, that great guitar player that teaches up Sonoma State. Randy and I had met. And next thing you know, Randy's introduced me to Bill Douglas, great bass player, and then Robert Kaufman, fantastic drummer that lived out there at the time, has since moved back to Boston. And we, we started a band specifically just to play only Monk. And it wasn't like we were trying to gig a lot. We played at the old Yoshi's a number of times. But our kind of main purpose was just to get together once a week and play Monk tunes. And Randy and I were transcribing all the ones that we didn't have. You know, we, 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 we didn't use fake book charts because most of those were just horrible. So sure. even if we had a chart, we, f- we fixed stuff, you know. And, and then we just transcribed the ones that there were no charts to. So that group, I think, was, a, was probably the most powerful and significant in, in my monk education, really. Wow. And, um, and then I moved, you know, fast forward moving to New York. I joined Motions Band. Paul loved to play monk. And there was a, a winter of 98 where I kind of tweaked all the monk charts and kind of went through them and fixed stuff. And um, we did a record where we recorded half Monk tunes, half Bud Powell tunes. That's the first Paul Motion record I'm on. Okay. And then um, this friend of mine saw it because I wrote everything out kind of, I have kind of nice manuscript. At least people tell me so. (laughs) But (laughs) I know that they're just trying to make me feel good. But but anyway... um, this one friend said, hey, you should talk to Don Sickler. And I said, well, because I knew Don was connected with publishing and the family, the Monk family. I said, I'm not really trying to do a book. I'm just, I'm just tired, was tired of seeing bad charts. And, you know, <laughs> I just kind of gave some charts out to some friends. That He said, well, you should talk to him anyway. So I let a few months go by and called him up and said, this friend of mine said, and Oh, Don asked me a few questions. Said, "Well, why don't you come over and show me your charts?" So I wrote everything out, kind of like lead sheet style, chord symbols with just melody and any other. If a voicing was such that I felt like it was truly part of the composition, I would put it in there. Yeah. I, I didn't get all monkophile and put stuff in there that was just only maybe something that he comped, but he didn't do as part of the right. regular composition. And so um, Don. At that point, he said, man, I like, I like um, the way you put this together because you have all the information, but it's not overloaded, and it's also not diluted. So he said how Leonard had, been, had asked him to do a book of all of Monk's tunes, but he never wanted to work on it by himself. So it was just kind of like timing, you know? Don't it was one of those things. Back. Yeah. So that's how it happened. Wow. <laughs> I'd love uh, it's so cool. I mean, I I just love to chat for a sec about like unpacking monk tunes. I'm interested in your opinion approaching it as a guitar player because you know we could we can try to do chord melodies um, or try to just do the melody justice or comping 
it's just a lot to i mean yeah. it's a heavy uh toll to like tr- try to you th- those are basically all the roles that monk could play on piano and doing that on guitar i want to check out this album i was looking to i couldn't find any recordings of you playing monk and i was like oh there must be but now that you mentioned the one with paul motion i'm definitely going to look at that because yeah i think monk is wonderful as far as the playing monk on guitar i mean it's 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 been a you know years long process you know and never ending but but the what what i when if students ask me that question i'll just say don't try to play everything you know because you're not a piano (laughs) and and then if you did even if you could it's probably not going to sound that comfortable and 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 you're going to maybe put an awkwardness in there that whereas if you took the main information because you want to you want the sound and the feeling of it that's Mm -hmm. to me more important than having all of the notes you know and so certain intervals like in light blue that duh duh it's like major seconds right well that yeah you need that you know so you have to kind of make some decisions but 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 strangely, there are a lot of his tunes where you can play a lot of the information, like Krepsky with Nelly, with just the exception of some register-oriented bass notes, you know, that you, know, you have to kind of transpose up an octave. It's amazing how much of that you can play. Right. <laughs> and it sounds great, and, and you really can get to it. You know? The other thing I also tell them is say, don't try to play like, don't try to do monkey monk stuff. Yeah. Like, dee, 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 you know, because then I said, because it'll just sound cute and stupid, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and Monk never was either of those. Or like descending know? whole tone. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but it's but the, the thing is that he played the way he played because that's the way he heard it. It was he wasn't trying to be funny or, you know, anything like that. It, and that's the thing is you're going to really do his music service if you if you approach it the way you play and just be yourself you know mm-hmm. this is this is also a good segue i want just to share a quick little story of one of the times i saw you play uh, at a small spot in brooklyn at, at halyards with uh, diego voglino's trio you did something that was really fascinating uh, i thought you you counted off a tune it was a trio bass and drums and you counted off it was the last tune of the set you counted off a burning tempo like you know like I, I How about, unusual for me! <laughs> about as fast, and I could tell. I look at I'm I'm looking at Diego and the guys, and they're kind of like, "Okay, here we're about to do this," and it, it was like a rhythm changes or something. And uh, you proceeded to solo in the most beautiful melodic way. Like you weren't playing fast; you weren't playing eighth notes. You were just sort of soaring over the top of these guys burning. And I just loved that approach because I think oftentimes people get into this notion where they they got to play as much as they can over the band or whatever. And from hearing you talk about just really playing your own way and using space and breathing, I thought that was just a wonderful little example that stuck with me. I think that was probably rhythm. I think it was probably rhythm and in. I was going to say it was rhythm and in, but I wasn't sure. I do a version of that with Ben, like when I play trio with Ben Allison sometimes. Where, where we do kind of like a, it's really fast, but we also kind of stop, start. The, we just do it by feel. We just go like, ba 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 da do da do ba ga ba ga 
drums. <laughs> you know, it's just this whole thing where we're kind of just barely hanging together, but it, yeah. it, it works somehow. But, I mean, I will do that every once in a while. I never felt like I was good at playing way up tempo, maybe for the re- reason you just mentioned is because that obliga- obligatory feeling of having to burn, you know? Right. But sometimes I'll just do it without thinking. I'll just go, I, before I can think about it and, and psych myself out, I'll just counter, I'll just go, yeah. you know? And then it's like I'm in it and it's like, oh, okay, we're just, we're just like on the airwaves now, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know another Jim Hall reference, the bridge. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, it was such a great. Recording. And he always he always said I said I knew I couldn't play fast, so I had to find another way to express what I needed to do. And it's like, yeah, there's more than one way. Fast doesn't mean everybody has to play fast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Exactly. And and same and with slow. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and you know, you you again, you have such range in your playing and your improvising. Uh, you can go so many different places. And and I wanted to highlight. Uh, another little moment from your new album here as we're kind of wrapping up here. Uh, it's a really beautiful track. It's called Fern's Guitar. And you're playing uh, steel string, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. You're getting a beautiful yeah, a sound. Martin. Be- mm-hmm. Before we hear the track, um, are you playing with just fingers on that? Or do you have any kind of pick going with that? or hybrid? Pl- Yeah, I mean, a lot of times I'll play like pick with these fingers. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, yeah I kind of yeah. get into that yeah. as well. That's so I'm doing that some, but then a lot of pick if I'm playing single line. Well, this whole album is just beautiful. This track is is full of space and melody and just beautiful interaction with you guys. So let's play this one for our listeners here before we, before we wrap it on up. This is Fern's Guitar, Steve Cardness's new album, Blue Has a Range. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh, really, thanks, really man. beautiful. Yeah, I had us all improvised together 
I mean, I was kind of leading the way, but I wanted it to be a collective improvisation. It's yeah, just... it sounds incredible. This this album again is called Blue Has a Range. Uh, relatively new, out just in the last month or so, you've released this exactly, on, yeah. on Sunnyside. Uh, I've picked up my copy on Bandcamp. If anybody who's listening yeah. is interested, go support uh, Steve and Sunnyside Records. Buy this album on Bandcamp, preferably. And uh, yeah, it's just a great album. This one will be on on repeat for me for a while. So oh man, so thank thanks you so much. I want to hear you guys play. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. I heard you, Perry. I remember hearing you at a Rob Garcia party like a couple years oh, ago. Yeah, I remember that. You sounded so great, man. I didn't want to sit in. I was like, okay, this guy's got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, you know, these have these have been challenging times for everybody. Uh, you know, we're hoping that in a down the road in a brighter future, we'll all be able to get out and hear each other perform and. Uh, you know, in the meantime, yeah. this this podcast has been something that we've been trying to do to, you know, f as far as a new West guitar group for us to keep connecting and creating it, but also to maybe establish a bit of a uh, community and, and reach out to different guitar players and, and just try and check in with everybody and say hello and tell people how much we appreciate what they do, yeah. because it's kind of an important time to do that right now, I think. You know, well, man, thank you for including me. I'm honored. And it was really fun. Oh, really pleasure to pleasure to chat. I wish yes. could go on and on. I know we could Thanks, talk. Steve. I'll, I'll I'll shed on my three thirty five today for you. Yeah, <laughs> and me me too. I yeah. do that. Yeah, Take care, my friend. <laughs> Take care, Steve. See ya. See ya. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.